Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut with your host, Rebecca Coombs. In today's show, episode five of the Healthy Gut Podcast, I am joined by Natalie Crutterden, who is a naturopath with over 20 years clinical experience, and she also spent a number of years working as a qualified nurse at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, which has proved invaluable to her naturopathic experience. She's had a lifelong interest in nutrition and has led her to a particular focus in digestive health. And she sees many people with SIBO, food intolerances and other gut-related issues. And she also works quite closely with patients with autoimmune issues as well as athletes consulting for sports nutrition. Natalie was a person who I walked into her clinic uh, nearly two years ago, in just absolute frustration. I'd spent 10 years looking for an answer as to why I felt so sick. And for the most part, no one believed me and I definitely didn't have any answers. And I sat down in the chair in her clinic and I said, I don't know what is wrong, but I feel really sick and I am at my wit's end. And she was the first person to say, I believe you. And not only did she believe me, but she also knew what was wrong with me. And uh, not long after that, I was diagnosed with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And then, you know, obviously I went through treatment and I have completely transformed my health since then. I literally credit Natalie for uh, saving and changing my life because I was in a pretty bad way by the time I ended up in her um, clinic. So today we talk about Natalie's approach to SIBO. Um, Being a naturopath, she takes a natural approach to it. Um, And we also talk about, uh, obviously, why she's so interested in gut health and SIBO in particular. And she has a, a lot of success stories with her treatment. I am one of them, which is really exciting. So we talk around that, but also why she's, she believes she's seeing an increase in patients coming through her clinic doors with uh, disordered digestion. So I hope you enjoy today's episode, episode five with Natalie Crutterden. Today's guest is someone that has been absolutely life-changing for me, and I am so excited to have her on my show. Natalie, welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, and I am thrilled to 
to have you on the show because really none of this would have happened if it wasn't for me stumbling across you one night in desperation when I was, you know, on Google desperately searching for answers as to why I felt sick. So really, we can we can blame you for all of this, everything that I've done since then. <laughs> well, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, from our first meeting, who would have thought that, you know, two or is it three cookbooks later and podcasts and whatnot, this is, we'd be having a chat on your podcast. It's pretty amazing, actually. It is amazing. And, and so for my listeners, Natalie Crutterton is the naturopath who treated me. And I really credit Natalie for being the person that has completely transformed my life. She's been there with me. She's been going on this crazy journey of mine. Um, and life wouldn't be as good as it is today if it wasn't for Natalie's support and uh, and help. And one of the greatest things that Natalie did for me right at the outset was that she said she believed me. When I turned up and said, I feel sick and I don't know what's wrong, she believed me. And that was probably such a uh, turning point in my journey to health because for years I'd been told it was all in my head or that that I just had IBS and I had to deal with it. So this is my opportunity, Natalie, to say such a heartfelt thank you for everything you've done so far for my health journey. So it's great to have you on the show today. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And I have to say, Rebecca, um, as for all of us naturopaths, we can give guidance, but it's really up to the person, the individual, to take that guidance on board and make it happen. So as grateful as I am for your very kind words, um, it's really all comes back to you and taking it on board and getting it done. So, so good on you. <laughs> Thank you. So I'd love to, for us to talk a bit about your journey to becoming such a, um, a well-known uh, practitioner in Melbourne for gut health and digestive disorders and really how you ended up here, how you ended up to be this uh, naturopath with such great skills when it comes to helping us with IBS and various digestive disorders. Mm. Okay, well, I think um, having a lot of experience really helps. <laughs> so although it makes me feel a little old, knowing that I've been practicing for 20 years, you, you do, you just sort of gather this experience along the way. You get to see patterns in people's presentation. Um, so when I started out in naturopathy, we didn't know what SIBO was. Obviously, we didn't know much about gut health at all. Um, except that naturopaths have always known that the health of the gut is central to health of the entire body. So it's great that those gaps have been filled in over the years. Um, but in terms of how I got here, well, I started I started studying um, because I knew that there was a connection between food and health. I, I, it was just, you know, an, an intuitive knowledge that there was a connection there. Um, so I studied naturopathy really to explore nutrition. Um, I loved the herbal medicine work that went along with it, but nutrition's always been my passion. Um, seven years ago, I started following paleo nutrition, which I'm sure most people are pretty familiar with it now and aware, but it takes out, um, grains and legumes and dairy out of the diet. And when I did that for myself seven years ago, I woke up on the third day of following paleo and felt quite possibly the best energy levels wise that I'd ever felt in my life. And so although I'd always known theoretically the impacts of nutrition on health, that was the first time I had lived it in such a profound way. So then I started working much 
with much heavier leaning with my patients um, on the power of their diet and nutrition and really treating supplements almost as secondary. So really trying to get people's nutrition dialed in. And then through that, of course, as you know with SIBO, if you put someone on a, on a paleo diet and they don't feel better, that's a big clue towards SIBO because the foods that aggravate people in SIBO are the vegetables and fruits that you're having in abundance in paleo. So it was just a sort of an evolution of, well, why is this not working for this person? And, and, and then a few years ago, we finally started to hear about this thing called SIBO just through some of the, um, the articles and so on that we received through nutrition companies. And that's when um, my husband, Chris, who I practice with, he, he was actually Chris that educated me about SIBO. Um, and then we've got a lot of our education then, of course, through um, Dr. Narala Jacoby at SIBO Test and Alison C. Becker and all those sort of gurus of SIBO um, overseas as well. Yeah, so that's wonderful. sort of how I that's sort of how I ended up here. Yeah. Yeah, great. And and I'm so grateful that you did and I'm grateful to Chris for telling you about SIBO yes. in the first <laughs> instance. Who knows where we would be if Chris hadn't have mentioned that. That's to you. right, that's right. <laughs> so, because he was working he was working a lot with people with fructose malabsorption. And of course we now know, I mean some people do have fructose malabsorption in their own right, but the vast majority of people that we see with fructose malabsorption, it's actually secondary to having SIBO. And when we can manage the SIBO and heal their gut, their tolerance for fructose um, goes up again. So that's sort of how that came about. And we saw that with myself when I first came to you. I was I was I was doing exactly that journey that you've talked about for yourself. I had been paleo. I then had done a, a month of the whole thirty program, which was like a super strict paleo. And whilst I felt better, I still didn't feel brilliant and I was starting to get quite problematic with certain fructose foods particularly onion and garlic were starting to really cause problems for me and I remember us having a conversation around the load of fructose that I was having that I would make a stir fry for instance with onion garlic chili and ginger and then it was just too much my system was just freaking out Um, but when my SIBO got under control and we kind of got that all clear diagnosis I have no Notice that I can eat fructose foods much more readily than I could before. Yeah, and that's what we typically see. So it doesn't necessarily, when people have um, sort of cleared their small intestine of the bacteria that aren't supposed to be there, there's still a lot of work to do to heal the damage, the residual damage. Um, so we don't always see that people can suddenly, at the end of it, eat anything they want in any quantity, there's still some degree of care that needs to be taken. I mean, you probably find the same thing, that there's a threshold, but your threshold is much greater now than what it used to be. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really good – and that's how we ask people to keep an eye on how they're going as well. If you notice, oh, I used to be able to eat that, and now that's that's creating symptoms again, that's that's a sign for us to get back on and make sure that that SIBO is not coming back. Mm-hmm. And so, Natalie, have you yourself ever had SIBO or gone through the SIBO program, uh, treatment and, and nutrition? Yeah, well, I've, I've always had gut, issue, uh, gut issues. So as a child, um, lots of problems with tummy aches and this is kind of disgusting, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I would sometimes vomit um, at night in, in my sleep. I wouldn't even know I'd done it. So there were things that were upsetting my system and I used to get eczema quite a lot. 
And in fact, I could probably credit um, our doctor. I grew up in Canberra. His name was Dr. Barraclough. I have no idea where he's at now. But when I was about 10 years old, he was the first person who ever spoke about um, the, the food that you eat and how it might affect your health. And so even though I look back now and, and what he recommended actually wasn't ideal for me, but he planted that seed and he also gave me a list of the ingredients in ice cream because I used to eat ice cream after dinner and I was horrified at the solvents and the, all the things that were in there. But anyway, that's as, as an aside. So gut issues had always been um, a problem for me and manifesting in my skin. When I uh, started exploring SIBO and also understanding that all those patients that were coming to see me with irritable bowel syndrome, that it was most likely that they had SIBO. And that was so incredibly exciting because before then, IBS was a management issue rather than something you could hope to overcome. So um, so I, I did the SIBO test. My main motivation was to experience the test because if I'm going to ask my patients to do something, I need to have a really thorough understanding of what it is that I'm asking them to do. So I did do the test and it was a great experience actually to do it because I found it incredibly disconcerting to do a, a, a sample that you can't see. So I'm not sure if you had that same experience that every time you, you blew into one of the vials, you look at it and you think, did I do it right? <laughs> Is so it true. in there? Or because, you know, you do a urine test, you can see the urine, you do a blood test, you can see the blood. But anyway, so it was it was very good to do that. It, my levels came back borderline positive. So they really weren't, I mean, I'd look at them now and I, if it were another patient and I'd see them, I'd say, look, this might be contributing a little, but there is something else going on. This isn't the causative probably not the causative agent for, for your gut symptoms. So, But I followed the diet for a couple of weeks um, and that was also invaluable as a practitioner um, because even though I was eating paleo, so I was already used to not having the grains and so on, it's still a big change having to monitor the amount of vegetables um, and, and I do a lot of exercise. I was quite hungry. Um, so it was good for me to know what it felt like so that I think that's easier when I talk to my patients now about what what they're going through with it. And I, I agree with you. I was I was paleo before and and I found it even even though I was quite strict, I was it was still quite a significant move forward in terms of what I could no longer eat that I had previously eaten under the paleo banner. Yeah, absolutely. And because a lot of it, you know, the vegetables are foods that we for those of us who are health conscious, we want to have them. You know, they're they're full of nutrients and fibres and all those things. So it feels very strange to be restricting what we've always been told is very good for us. It is. So that's a bit of a psychological leap as well. Yeah. And, of course, when I was doing it, there were no SIBO cookbooks. <laughs> Up until how long ago was it? Two years ago there were no SIBO cookbooks. So um, that was harder then. It's much easier now that people have those resources, much easier. And it's funny, when, when I was going through my treatment, I remember one of the first questions I asked you when the SIBO test came back positive and I was sitting in your clinic and you were saying, right, it's positive and this is now going to be your life uh, for a little while. And one of my first questions was, well, where, what cookbooks are there? What resources are there? And you said, well, there aren't really any. Um, not following Dr. Narala Jacoby's um, SIBO protocol anyway. So off I went thinking, oh, 
well, that's crazy. How are there no cookbooks out there in the world? I think I better document what I write and what I eat. And uh, and I remember coming to you when I, when I was starting to look like things were getting really good again and, and saying to you, I've got this idea. Why don't I put together an e-book for your patients? And you can use that for your other patients who have SIBO. That was my That was really my first thought around how I could help people. And it's really kind of grown and escalated and, and gone, you know, incredibly crazy since then. Absolutely. And that was just music to my ears, as you can imagine. I mean, every practitioner wants to be able to give their patients resources, but we don't always have the time or the energy or the motivation to create the resources. So you said that and I said, yes, please, that would be great. (laughs) Definitely. I want to talk a little bit more about our story, our journey together, because I think it's important to share um, uh, the importance of finding a practitioner or practitioners that can work with you um, for those people that are listening to the podcast, uh, especially because I went through years and years of going to my uh, my normal doctor or doctors for where, wherever I lived, and I lived both here and in the UK um, when I realised things weren't going great for me, and I just kept getting, you know, brick walls. People would say either you've just got IBS or, you know, do you really have these problems? Are you perhaps a little bit of a hypochondriac? And so I kept looking and I think that's an important thing for people to to take away from this podcast is keep looking until you find that practitioner because they are out there. Sometimes they just take a little while to find. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sorry, keep going. Yeah. No, and, and just the importance of then when you, you know, find a practitioner that that you work with them, you're, they're like a t- you're a team really. And I don't know if that's how you see it, but I see it like that, that you're part of my health and wellness team and you're part of my journey. Absolutely. And I'm always encouraging my patients to create a team around them because health obviously is multidimensional. So, I can't fill um, everyone's needs. Um, and yes, the patients of mine who have the greatest success are the people who reach out, get a great team around them and keep those lines of communication really open because the only time it gets really awkward is if you're, say, seeing two practitioners of the same um, in the same field at the same time. That can get tricky. So if you're trying to be under the care of two naturopaths who are saying to do different things, that's complicated. But if you've got... Um, you know, your acupuncturist, your psychologist, your personal trainer and all of those, that's that's a fantastic way to approach your health. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I look at my health and wellness team and I have you uh, as my naturopath. I have a personal trainer who keeps me accountable for uh, actually moving my body and, and strengthening my body. I also see a psychologist who's helping me with the mental side of getting well again, because after a lifetime of chronic illness, um, I realized that I was uh, perhaps not as well as I could mentally when I thought about my outlook and my... Um, just my my positivity perhaps towards being a well person rather than identifying as a sick person um and it's almost like i treat my health my health team like i would a business team and i'm you know i'm a i have my own businesses and i seek out support of people that are qualified and experts in their field so i work with a graphic designer i have a business coach um, i work with digital marketing people and they're all experts in what they do i i don't 
ever try to know everything I can about their fields. And I take the same approach with health, that I go and seek out these people that are really good at what they do and I can kind of glean information off them to help me on my journey. Yeah, and I, and I think that's such a smart way to do it. And I often have patients who are um, incredibly well-educated. So people will come and see me and they've read an awful lot about SIBO. They know about the, all the different treatments, yet because it's not their area of expertise, often what they just need is some guidance. So they've got the information but don't quite know what order to do things in or, you know, and I, so, I, yeah, I agree. I think it's really smart to have some people guiding you and at the same time you can be incredibly well-educated about what you're doing. And I think that there's so much information out there and it's growing every day, it seems, around gut health and SIBO and other disorders of the digestive system that it can get quite overwhelming. And particularly um, for those of us, and I've been guilty of this, that you can spend hours and hours in some of these support groups online, um, which are great, uh, but but often you can get quite conflicting information from them because somebody is talking about one piece of research that they've read or an idea or a suggestion that they've heard um, and then someone's talking about something else and you can be left in the middle thinking, I just don't know what to do for myself. Absolutely. And I think um, it's partly because they, they're just there is some conflicting information because it's a relatively new area. There's a lot of studies going on. It's a very exciting area, um, but it means that it's evolving quite quickly. But the other thing is nutrition is so individualized. So it's not just individualized to, to you, but also to you depending on where you're at at how far along the healing path you've gone. So it will change as well. So just because one person can manage one style of diet or one sorts of foods doesn't mean you can, but it doesn't mean that you never can. So <laughs> it's because it's not just black and white, it can get quite confusing for people, I think. So that's when it's good to have someone at the head of the whole thing saying, let's go in this direction yeah. and, 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 and being quite methodical. You need to be really quite methodical with SIBO. Actually, that's just can I just say one thing as well about SIBO that people often ask me? I think it's really important. People will often read about it and they feel within themselves that they have it. They, they identify with many of the symptoms. And one of the most common questions I get is, do I really have to do the test? And the answer is, you absolutely have to do the test. So, and for a few reasons. One is that it's a fairly big undertaking, as we were just talking about, the dietary change as well as, and we haven't talked about the, um, the herbal or, or antibiotic treatment, whatever treatment people use as well. So it's a big undertaking. So for one, you need to know for sure if you've got it. But secondly, the test will show whether you're methane positive or hydrogen positive or both. That will influence um, the treatment itself. And it also shows levels. So it's not just yes or no. It will show the degrees to which you have SIBO. And that's very useful for predicting how long the treatment's going to take. So sometimes people would like to save the money all the time. But in the long run, you will get far better outcomes if you just get all the information at the very beginning. And then you know exactly what it is that you're trying to treat. I think that's a really great point to make so that people don't go and self-diagnose um, because, as we know, diet isn't going to cure SIBO. It will help relieve symptoms, but it won't cure SIBO completely. That's right. So, And that's sort of the situation where people 
with irritable bowel, who have been diagnosed with irritable bowel but haven't yet explored SIBO in, is that the diet is, is simply management and it's lifelong. So unless you do something to kill off those bugs, the, the diet is only just going to help you feel that you can reduce your symptoms so that it doesn't interfere with your life too much. Exactly. So Natalie, can you talk through your approach to treating SIBO, um, how you approach it from a naturopathic perspective? Absolutely. So, so as we've touched on, first of all, there's the diet and the diet is really reducing those um, carbohydrates that fuel the, or act as food for the, um, for the SIBO bugs. So that's one prong of it is the diet. The second part is the active antimicrobial treatment. And so we use herbal antimicrobials. We use different ones depending on whether people are hydrogen positive or methane positive. Um, I'm sure you'll recall from your treatment, we try and switch it up a lot as well. So um, it's, you know, potentially the same as having antibiotic resistance. Some bugs are susceptible to some um, some substances, other bugs are resistant to them. So because we don't have sensitivity panels, we just try and change up. I mean, a lot of the um, herbs we use contain a compound called berberine. That's for the hydrogen producing um bugs and so we try and and switch it and that herbal antimicrobial treatment will go depending on people's levels from anywhere from six weeks to four or five months um i usually ask people to now i ask people to retest after eight weeks so that we can see are we having an impact if we are by what percentage have the levels dropped and then we can work out how much longer we need to keep going um, does that does that make sense? That does make sense, and I'd like to know why we need different uh, treatments for um, hydrogen or methane. What what's the reason for that? So the the meth- so the hydrogen producing bacteria really are bacteria. The methane producing bacteria aren't bacteria. They they um, a different class. They're called archaea, and they're just not. They're just a different. They're a different beast, <laughs> literally, um, and so. The methane-producing bugs really respond much better to um, the herbal antimicrobials that are derived from garlic, which is it sounds crazy, doesn't it? Because garlic is one of those foods that you're avoiding because of the fructose, but it's the active constituent of garlic that doesn't contain that carbohydrate portion that is particularly good at killing the methane bugs. Methane bugs are generally um, harder to treat than the hydrogen-producing ones. So if you just went ahead and did the hydrogen-producing ones but you were methane positive, you, might, you just might not be able to kill them off in, in the same way. Mm, and I remember from my tests that I was hydrogen-dominant but I did still have methane uh, production occurring but I was definitely uh, swinging right to the hydrogen side and, and from memory and I can't remember my numbers now I'll have to fish out my test results um, that my that I kind of was quite low and then it just skyrocketed at about the 40 minute mark into the test so it was very clear from my test that there was hydrogen bugs in there having a great time absolutely and you know and often we see that it's there's not there's not a lot of interpretation needed in a lot of these tests they're just off the charts and 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 so that's why that follow-up test at eight weeks is so important because um if you leave it much longer than eight weeks then 
so you need to check in that your protocol's working, I guess is what I'm trying to say, which is another reason that it's really important to test in the first place so that you can go back, you can make sure you're making the progress that you need to um, because if there's resistance going on, you need to then have another look at how to approach it and what you're doing. I was going to say, what do you do if someone uh, presents with IBS-type symptoms, symptoms that are also classically associated with SIBO? You do a test with them, but it comes back either borderline or it's not showing SIBO at all. What's your approach to them? Well, so that's when you need to have taken a really good um, case history as well. So it might be more that you're thinking, well, if, they, if they've got more the um, – autoimmune issues like Hashimoto's or psoriasis and things like that, or they might have a much more allergic predisposition, so they might present with eczema or asthma, then I'd be looking at different types of food intolerances. So whereas the SIBO and the FODMAP ones are to do with the carbohydrate portions of foods, you can also look at um, um, the people reacting to the protein portions of foods through, um, there's a finger prick test that tests for immunoglobulin type G, IgG antibodies. And so very often we find that that's actually what's going on and that their gut is being aggravated by these different types of foods. Um, We also use um, some stool sample testing, complete digestive stool analysis, which gives you a wealth of information about the function of that person's digestive tract. So whereas a colonoscopy, for example, will just be looking for structural change, these stool sample tests can also let you know their levels of... um, good bacteria, whether there's any parasites, for example, um, how, the digest- how well the digestive enzymes are working and so on. So we always try to look at the collection of symptoms and, and test for what we think is the most likely situation that's going on. Um, but if it comes back negative, then we look further afield. However, there, is, there are a couple of different types of SIBO tests you can do as well. We usually use lactulose as the sugar to challenge the body to see whether people are producing the um, the gases. If we were really, really, really convinced that someone had SIBO and their lactulose test came back negative, you can use glucose testing as well. It's, it's highly accurate but for a shorter period of time, so it can catch some cases of SIBO but miss others. Um, so sometimes we would do that as well if we really felt like that's what was going on. And when you say for a shorter period of time, what do you mean by that? So it's absorbed quite rapidly in the body. So it will only show SIBO early on, higher up in the small intestine. Oh, okay, right. So we've talked about, obviously, your first steps are that you um, you test them and we've talked about if they come back positive or if they're a bit borderline and then you retest them. What else do you do in your treatment of people with SIBO? So, yeah, so we've got the dietary modification, we've got the active um, antimicrobials, so we're really trying to kill off those bugs. But then the big area um, that needs to be addressed is to prevent SIBO from recurring because SIBO has, if it's not managed correctly, has a very, very high rate of recurrence. So um, as you know, there is this this process that happens in your small intestine. It's called the migratory motor complex or the MMC, and it's like a wave. It's a a wave that happens about every 90 minutes, and you can think of it as um, like a broom sweeping out your small intestine. So it's pushing everything downward towards the large intestine and just keeping keeping the house clean. The SIBO bugs interfere with the 
efficiency of that wave. And very often that wave is really not functioning well at all. So even if you manage to clear out all the bugs, if you don't reestablish that wave, they literally just migrate up again. So there are certain, there are different ways, different herbs or formulas that can be used, but from very early in the piece, for me, it's usually within two or three weeks of um, active antimicrobial treatment. I will then start the person with these um, supplements to help promote the MMC, and often we ask people to stay on them for 12 months, so well after the, um, the active treatment is finished. And I have to say, because we're so fortunate that um, when we started working with SIBO, this was this was already um, people already knew about this. We've just done it from the outset, so we don't find that we have a very high recurrence rate um, of SIBO amongst our patients. But we would if we didn't do that. <laughs> Definitely, and I know myself. I stayed on the Prokinetic. I still take it actually. Um, I don't take it as rigidly as I did, but um, I just uh, you know I I keep taking it, and part of my uh, strategy for retaining or remaining SIBO free is that I, I do a round of herbs with you every couple of months um, because I recognize that as a as someone that has endometriosis there and I've had several abdominal surgeries and I'm convinced I'm full of lesions uh, it puts me at a much higher risk of SIBO recurrence so that's our that's our kind of plan for me isn't it <laughs> along with investigating other things that might be going wrong with me <laughs> and that's right You've, it's, and the other thing that happens I think though is people who go through the SIBO process um, really know their body very, very well and can read what's going on very well. And occasionally I'll have someone who I may not have seen for six months or 12 months ring me up and say, oh, I think I need to come back in again. I, th- I can feel things are just going backwards a little bit and we'll just do a, a really abbreviated version, sort of exactly what you're speaking of, and it just sit, sees them right again. So depending very much on the underlying cause of why you got SIBO in the first place, that will dictate that. So if you got SIBO from um, uh, something uh, that's more functional rather than structural, so just say you got it from a, a, um, a bout of gastro, you might not be as susceptible as someone who's got adhesions or those structural reasons that it might recur. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Definitely. And what's your take on why people are successful or find themselves relapsing when it comes to SIBO? Um, hmm, that's a very good question. I, I mean, I think I think sticking with the protocol is is the key. So you can't really half treat SIBO. So, for example, if people say to me, "I'm about to go overseas for a month," or our wedding's coming up or, you know, things that are really going to get in the way, I advise people just to wait. So you've had this for many years probably. 
Just wait that extra month or that six weeks. Set yourself up for success from the outset, but don't try and half do it because with SIBO that just won't work. So you really need to have your head around what you're doing, get all the resources, make sure you're okay with the foods and really, really commit to it. And there's one thing actually that you said to me, Rebecca, that I have um, shared with a lot of my patients actually because it really had a great impact on me was when you talked about um, switching your mindset from when you were looking at your food, the plate of food you could have and instead of looking at it from a place of um, what you were missing out on and, and what wasn't on your plate – you switched to looking at it in terms of being grateful for the beautiful fresh food that you were able to eat that was going to help you heal your body. And I just think that's so profound because there often is when people are told they or, or they agree that they are not going to eat certain foods, there can be some grief in there which they can then turn to anger and resentment and people can get in a bad space mentally with it. So I think keeping a gratitude journal, being really positive that you're doing that for long-term health and that you're going to be a much happier person in the long term. I think that's really, really important. And you, it's, it's so easy to feel deprived when you start out uh, because all these foods that you watch everybody else eating, like burgers and fries and sandwiches, even basic food, you know, things that you ate for, for many people every day, like having your lunchtime sandwich is now off limits. And it's really easy to feel like the world is against you because you can't eat this food that you can see everybody else eat. And you go into a cafe and their whole display cabinets are full of products you cannot touch. You can't eat, yeah. And it can be really upsetting. I know I mourned the loss of food even though I hadn't been eating it. It was funny. I, you know, I wasn't eating bread and gluten beforehand, but just because I – I knew I could if I wanted to. I would have suffered for it, but I knew I could. But then as soon as I went onto the the SIBO protocol and that was completely off limits, I then mourned it. It was it was a peculiar experience. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, yeah, again, it's – on the flip side of that, I have patients, though, who – because it's always usually the, the first few weeks that happens – it's hard and it takes a while to find the foods that you that you really love that end up becoming your daily foods and that you become happy with. But on the flip side of all of that, I sometimes have patients and I say, great, you know, it looks like the SIBO is all cleared. Now we've got to really systematically start to bring in these foods you haven't been having. And some people will say, this is the best I've felt in 30 years. I don't want to eat anything else. Um, so they're just so relieved that they're not unwell anymore, uh, that they're quite happy to go that way. But in fact, what we want is for people to be able to have the broadest amount of nutrients that they can. So we do try and encourage people um, because, yeah, so the, in terms of the treatment process, um, once the SIBO has been cleared, treatment doesn't just stop. Because, as I said earlier, you know, those, those little critters in your um, small intestine have left some re residual damage and that needs to be healed up. So we do a lot of work with leaky gut um, and, he and, and, you know, um, anti-inflammatories anti to the gut and healing everything up and being very, very systematic about introducing the food groups that people haven't been having so that we can read and see whether anything's flaring you up or not. And, and you may still have reactions to foods because it might not only 
your food reactions may not only be caused by SIBO. Yeah. I remember when we got my test back and it, and it came back that I'd beaten the SIBO. The next step for us, it definitely wasn't the end of the journey. I remember you saying to me, right now, let's look at how leaky your gut is or how permeable your gut is. So I went off to do the, the urine test um, and it came back. And I remember you saying to me, now I've seen worse, but, <laughs> you know, we've got some work to do. And I wasn't surprised by that after years, a lifetime of being unwell. It really didn't surprise me that my poor little gut lining was in a pretty bad way. I, I thought of it like, look, it probably looked like a sieve. And we also did the complete stool analysis and we did the immune uh, blood test so that we could see what foods uh, I was reacting to. And it's when you delivered the very sad news to me that eggs were off limits for hopefully a short period of time. I'm still not eating them and uh, hopefully not forever. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately eggs is a really common one and that's really tricky when you've been, when you're paleo or been doing SIBO because they become a staple. So, yeah, it, it, sometimes these things get quite tricky. Um, but you just reminded, made me remember, um, you know, the things that, thank goodness that we have this new knowledge, thank goodness things progress because I can now look back and I've had a few patients in the past who have had leaky gut and we've done the leaky gut treatment and, and the protocol and, and they haven't healed and I couldn't work out why. Back then I didn't know about SIBO and SIBO is such a game changer that if you've got SIBO and you don't treat it, it gets in the way of healing everything else. So I look back now and go, ah, those people had SIBO. If we'd cleared the SIBO first, we would have been able to heal the leaky gut. So sometimes you've just got to be able to do things in the right order as well. You do, definitely. Um, and something that I'd like to share to the listeners that you said to me as well, and, we, and it backtracks a little bit, but it's around not being able to do SIBO treatment half-heartedly. And when I first got that diagnosis from you, I remember thinking to myself, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll stick to the program most of the time, but I'll you know, I'll have the occasional glass of wine here and there, or if I'm eating out, I'm not going to be that strict. And it was like you read my mind and you said to me, Rebecca, if you cheat, you go back to the start. And I was asking you, how do I beat this as quickly as possible? I, you know, I finally had an answer as to why I felt sick and I wanted to know what did I have to do to, to get rid of it quickly. I didn't want to suffer any longer. And, and those words to, to me actually were – they were quite profound because – when I was having those moments where I felt the world was against me, it was all too hard, I was having, particularly in the early days, I was having really strong cravings for carbohydrates and sugars, which I feel that that was the bacteria screaming out, hey, give me some food, I'm, I'm starving down here. And every time I felt like that, your words would come into my head and I would think, you know, I'm not going back to the start. I'm not starting this treatment again from the beginning. I want to get rid of this as quickly as possible. And that kept me strong. So thank you for saying that to me. Yeah, that's a pleasure. And it's not something I actually like to say. So, you know, people who come to see me for um, weight loss, for example, I will say to them, I actually want you to break away from being quite strict at least once a week because I want you to still enjoy the social aspects of food or, you know, the cultural aspects of food, or all those other things. And it's very hard to be self-disciplined all the time. So when I can give people some, and, and it also doesn't undo their work, to do that occasionally is fine. So wherever you can give people some freedom, it's lovely to do that. With SIBO, it's just 
you just don't want to keep fueling them. It's just that issue of of those levels just being able to rise. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to do it fast, you do it tightly. Exactly. But if you don't do it fast, if you don't do it really tightly, it can still happen, but it just makes it a bit more laborious. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I guess I'm the kind of a, a good example of when you do stick to it rigidly and strictly that you can get through it quickly. And, and I, it was pretty quick, reasonably for me. I, I, it took me, we retested at the six month mark. We probably could have retested much sooner than that. But like you said before, I felt so good that I didn't really want to change the way I was. I just felt so much better. And I think that that leads us into the next question that I have for you around. Do you see this SIBO diet and, and, and sort of way of living as becoming problematic for people because I know that for myself and I have suffered from an eating disorder in the past that there was such comfort and security in the SIBO diet. I knew what I could eat and I knew what I couldn't eat and when we had that conversation of okay it's time to start introducing some new foods I got quite scared of it because I was scared I was going to feel unwell, I was scared I was going to have some symptoms return, I didn't know what to expect. Um, Do you see that in your practice with other patients? Definitely. So at the beginning, people are saying, I can't wait until, you know, I get to the point where I can try, you know, whatever it is that they're missing the most. By the time it gets to that point, the 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 diet has become uh, familiar, as you say. And so always dietary change can be, uh, it, it takes some energy and some thought and, and sometimes it's easier just to keep doing what you're doing. Um, but I think I think we navigate it pretty well um, with our patients because we work together to decide what order people want to um, reintroduce the foods. We encourage people to do it very, very slowly and only one new food at a time, not just a new food group, but one new food and no more quickly than every four days because we really want to see if you can manage it. And then, of course, because there's that issue of threshold, you might be all right with some garlic in one meal and you might be all right with, um, I don't know, what else is there, some, some we we'll just say some onion in the next meal. But if you have both of them together, are you going to be okay? So you just have to be really, really um, systematic about it. And, and people sometimes will just, um, you know, at the end of the treatment, the testers come back clear and then they go out and they'll have a, a pizza, which is, got, you know, the wheat, the dairy, the onion, the garlic, the whole shebang. Um, and some people get, can get away with that, but some people will feel really dreadful and then they just, so that they, it, it makes them respect the process again in a way. It takes a week or two to get over it. They have to pull all the way back to our strict SIBO diet, wait until all the symptoms have completely resolved and then slowly start to reintroduce again. So if you go a bit too crazy at the beginning, it can make the process even longer. So the self-discipline is required there, definitely. But, I mean, most people are, are by that point are feeling really so much better, so much more freedom in their life. They're not having to wear elastic-waisted pants anymore. They're not needing to know where every public toilet is when they go out. Um, their body doesn't hurt as much. They've got more energy. That People are really quite self-motivated by that point and really willing to see the process through. Yeah, that's what I see with my patients. 
Yeah, and I know that I was. I did have a little blowout when I first got the all clear and and then we slowly re- – and I didn't feel great. I think I ate bur- a burger. So I got all of the – I got everything in one go. But um, but I, I remember I went to France. I, I, tr- I had a trip planned to France and I went over there and I remember just the joy at being able to eat some, you know, beautiful, fresh French baguette with French butter and French cheese and I I didn't suffer and it was wonderful because by that point my body was more willing or able to accept some of these foods again and uh, whilst I choose not to eat those foods on a regular basis, gosh, it was glorious being able to just enjoy my time in France and not worry about the bloating and for me the constipation and, and all of that that comes with SIBO. So it was wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think you're really smart in what you're doing now that you don't go back and start to um, then eat massive amounts of wheat again or massive amounts of dairy. Just, you know, if you don't overburden your body with any single type of food, you're much less likely to to react to it. So it's smart those things occasionally. Yeah. I find that for me, I, I can tolerate wheat and gluten. Uh, sorry, gluten and dairy. Now I don't have those symptoms that I once did. However, I just don't feel as wonderful as I do when I eat a good piece of protein with vegetables. I feel so much more energized from that food than I do if I have the occasional meal that's got gluten or dairy in it. So, you know, for instance, if I have a pizza with friends these days, which it's nice to be able to do things socially that I was limited at doing for a while, um, I just don't feel wonderful. It just doesn't make me feel you know, like I've got the best nutrition going through my system. So I choose to just keep that food for special occasions. Yep. And I'm exactly the same. I mean, I've been following paleo nutrition for seven years, um, a little more loosely in the last few years than in the, I was very strict initially. And I I agree. I just find that um, when you take the, particularly the, the just grain, the starchy grains of pasta and bread and those things away, you end up replacing them with with vegetables and proteins and good quality fats, and the food is just nicer. I mean, even though people grieve giving up those foods initially, most people end up preferring to, to limit them just because they feel better without them and the food isn't. I mean, to have zucchini noodles on the base of a pasta sauce, I would take any day over having regular pasta. Some people might think I'm mad for that, but (laughs) I just think it's so much nicer. Yeah, it is wonderful. So Natalie, why do you think that we're ending up with SIBO? Do you think that SIBO is increasing or growing or do you think it was always there and we just didn't know about it? I'm sure it was always there and we just didn't know. So um, there was a study a few years ago, I can't remember um, the exact figure, but I think it said uh, close to 80% of people in that study who had irritable bowel syndrome, in fact, had were positive for SIBO. Um, and so you think about the millions of people that have IBS and, and have, and we've been talking about IBS for decades, so I'm quite sure most of those people have had SIBO. I think, um, you know, probably gut issues, gut issues probably are more prevalent now than they used to be. I think mainly because we have a lot of non-food ingredients in our foods. So, you know, just the different chemicals and additives and preservatives. And if people aren't cooking from scratch from home, I think our systems just get overloaded with um, with these chemicals that our bodies weren't really designed to, to process. Um, 
so, so I think probably some gut things are on the increase, but by the same token, I just think we're much better at identifying now exactly what's going on. But unbelievably common. I mean, I'm sure if you, you know, in your experience, if you were chatting with people about what was going on, you would have so many people say, oh, I get that. I feel like that. Or my mum has that or my sister has that. You know, it's very, very common. I'm yet to have a conversation with somebody whereby it's either it's not them or somebody else saying, that's me. Oh, my gosh, that's me. Every single conversation I have with anybody, be it in a restaurant, be it with friends, be it at business meetings, anywhere, people are identifying with this. Yeah. And, and I'm, I mean, I don't know all the reasons why because I'm just thinking now, um, you know, we see, we see kids at our clinic with SIBO, seven- and eight-year-olds, um, you know, they haven't had abdominal surgery. They, Some of them have had gastro. Uh, they haven't had decades of, you know, these non-food ingredients because they haven't, they're not that old. So I don't know exactly why, but it's definitely very common. Mm, unfortunately. But the good thing is we're doing something about the awareness piece. So the more we can make people aware about SIBO and that there is now something that can be done about it, the better it is for people's overall health because they can go and get help for it. Yeah, absolutely, and feel a million times better than ha- than what they have been feeling. Yeah, definitely. Was as I went through my treatment, I realised that there were five key areas that I needed to address in order to truly regain my health and happiness. And I'd love to just touch on these quickly with you, Natalie, to talk about how you feel, what whether you feel that these are important. Firstly, and what uh, your approach is to the five key pillars. So the first step for me was around awareness needing to get aware of my body and the symptoms and my surroundings and just my treatment um, so that I could regain my health. How important do you believe awareness to be as a first step in health? Well, it's, it's everything really, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you don't have an awareness of how you're feeling within yourself, how you're responding to things, you don't have a point of reference, um, it's difficult to track your progress, and I think some people some people are just naturally very in touch with their bodies, but some people are actually quite removed. For example, I might say to someone, "Do you, um, do you get bloated do you, after meals?" And they just don't know, and that's fine. But then the next time I'll see them, they'll say, "I've realised that I'm actually bloated all the time. <laughs> I just hadn't paid attention to it." So, and I and I often ask people to keep a little diary with scores out of ten, scores for energy scores for moods, scores for sleep quality, that kind of thing, just so that they can be yeah, aware of where they're at and what's going on. What about nutrition? I know we've talked a reasonable amount about nutrition so far on this podcast. How important do you believe nutrition is to regaining your health? Uh, it, it is, to my mind, it is the absolute fundamental part of healing from any kind of um, disease or health issues because it's it's central you know everything that our body does all the enzymatic processes all the building blocks of our cells and so on it all comes through our fats our proteins our carbohydrates all the trace minerals um so if you're not giving your body that fuel how do you expect it to work at its best so in in the past before i really understood how profound the quality of your diet is as I mentioned earlier, I used to rely on um, herbal and vitamin and mineral supplements for my patients a lot more. Now I see it, it's like night and day. The people who can get their nutrition on track just don't need as much extra support. 
It's um, whereas you, you can't, you know, they say um, you can't overcome poor dietary choices through medicines, whether they're naturopathic or pharmaceutical, you, you just can't. So I just think it's, it's absolutely fundamental. Definitely. The third piece that I realized I had to focus on was my movement. I'd become pretty sluggish because I'd been feeling pretty sick. Uh, now, you're very fit. You love your movement. Um, talk to me about yeah, your approach with patients around and your own lifestyle around the importance of movement. Yeah. So that's a, that can be really variable depending on, for me, for my patients, depending on where they're at. So Ideally, if someone's energy levels are good, there are so many good reasons to, to use our bodies. You know, they were designed to be moved. We know now that, you know, they talk about sitting being um, a really high risk factor for cardiovascular disease later in life and all of those things. I think for mental health, movement's incredible. Um, whether it's doing a peaceful kind of movement like um, walking and being outdoors and just and, and sort of yeah, putting that awareness into it as well of really, you know, looking at, at the beauty of the nature around you or the birds singing and so on. That's really good for your nervous system, really good for stress levels. Or it can be more intense movement, um, like what I do with CrossFit, that is so intense that it's completely, um, it takes, it requires all your attention. You can't worry about what you're going to cook for dinner, whether the kids are okay at school. You can't worry, think about anything else. I think that's also quite healthy because we all tend to multitask a bit. Um, but also, of course, you know, in terms of physiologically, our lymphatic system, which, which you know, cleans up our, our cells and looks after um, just getting the junk out of our system, if you like, it doesn't have a pump. So if we don't use the muscles and get the muscles to squeeze around those lymphatic glands, it, it can build up. So the exercise and movement is really important for that as well. But on the flip side, some people are really fatigued um, and if there's any degree of adrenal fatigue, chronic fatigue, anything like that going on, it's, it's movement is not the best thing. I don't, well, exercise is not necessarily the best thing at that point. Sleep is far more important, sleep and, and good nutrition. So, when, for example, when I um, before I started using paleo for myself, my energy levels were chronically low and that was one of the things that um, – inspired me to, to try paleo and when I said I woke up with the third day full of energy after about six or eight weeks I needed to exercise I was actually jumping out of my skin and I hadn't consistently formally exercised since I was a teenager at that point so you know it was a good oh I'd hate to think 20 odd years since I'd done that so when you're when you've got the vitality and energy to do it it's amazing but it can be depleting I think if people, you know, sometimes the more the type A people want to push, even though their body is saying no. So, yeah, I think it needs to be balanced. That's so true. And I'm very much a type A person. I am on the go all the time. And I had to recognize that my movement these days is about gentle walks and yoga and, and karma exercise or movement that doesn't put my system under so much strain. Um, whereas in the past, I'd be training for triathlons and I'd be trying to do runs and all sorts of things that just were quite exhausting. Too much. Yeah. If you're feeling really exhausted afterwards, it's not the right thing. 
sometimes yeah, I it's, it's okay to feel sleep. <laughs> yes. Yeah, see, that's it. Whereas, you know, ideally you come back and you feel energised. Definitely. The fourth piece was around mindset and I know we've talked about that, but I really, you know, it was so important for me to get my mind in check and right to help me with my journey to health. What's your thoughts on mindset? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important. Um, I mean, really what what we think dictates how we act. And so if our thoughts aren't in line with what we're trying to achieve, it gets very, very tricky. Um, I, I don't I, – so quite a lot of my patients see um, psychologists or counsellors. I think that's brilliant. And I don't um, have any particular sort of counselling aspect so much, you know, in my own practice. But something I do – there are two things I chat with people about. One is having a gratitude journal. I just think it's so powerful for something that takes – literally a few minutes out of your day just to jot down at the end of the day three things that you're grateful for and it doesn't matter whether it's to do with your SIBO treatment or not. Um, I just think consistent practice of that just shifts people to a more positive mindset just through that consistent work Um, and I also think it's really good for people to do some kind of, even if it's short, just 10 minutes, some kind of mindfulness uh, meditation, something to stop you projecting into the future or dwelling on the past, something just to keep you right here, right now, um, because that can release a whole lot of baggage. It can it can release a whole lot of worry about the future or depression about the past. It can just keep you fresh right here, right now. And, that, and I think that's really liberating for people, particularly if they've been struggling with their health and not feeling great for a long time. I know that with my own journey that I needed to change my mindset and so I started a happiness jar whereby I write down on a post-it note or a little piece of paper what has made me happy for the day and I pop it in the jar and my plan is that on New Year's Eve this year I'll pull out all of the bits of paper in my jar and be reminded of all the really great things that have happened to me throughout the year Um, because I think it's important for us to think about the positives, not always focus on the negatives. It's been really fun and I do things like I got to pat a cute dog today or I the sun was shining or it was I saw some blossom you know it's not it's all sorts of things about life that make me happy so it's helping me to shift my mindset and my focus. The fifth piece that I realized on my journey to health was my lifestyle. So I couldn't regain true health and happiness with the four previous pillars if I didn't look at how my lifestyle changed and also supported this new way of being. What's your thoughts around the lifestyle component of healing and health? Well, yes. I mean, they're all so important, aren't they? I think um, if someone is working 60-hour weeks or um, are in relationships where there's a lot of arguing or, you know, there's all these other things outside of what we've already touched on um, that if they're, I suppose if there's anything that's working as a stress against you rather than something supportive for you, then you really need to consider the worthiness of it. Um, Or it could be even what we were saying before, you know, are you getting up at five in the morning to go and train, you know, do some exercise really hard for two hours before you start your 12-hour day? Um, 
you know, is that really healthy? Is that really good for you? It, it might make you feel um, that you're in control, but it's probably undermining what you're trying to achieve. So is that the sort of thing you mean around lifestyle? I, I do definitely. And also the sleep component falls into lifestyle. I, I'm a, I have been notorious as a night owl and it's, it's a project of mine at the moment to get to bed before midnight. Now, sometimes I succeed, sometimes I fail. And I know you and I have talked about the differences. You're a morning person, I'm a night person. Um, but I know that when I'm only getting six, five or six hours sleep regularly a night, I'm not giving myself the best opportunity to heal. That, that's right. Um, and look, people people do fine on different amounts of sleep. There's no, not necessarily one type. But people know within themselves whether what you're doing is nurturing to you or whether it's detracting um, and if you can feel that it's perhaps not quite so good, then it's definitely worth addressing. Yeah, definitely. And I know that on five or six hours sleep, I'm not my best person. I'm not feeling wonderful. I do feel really good on seven or eight hours sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And look, and it's one of those things that it is a process to change it. You can't just suddenly start going to bed at 10 o'clock every night and expect that you're going to fall asleep in the first 10 minutes. And, you know, you've got to have strategies. And one of the best strategies is to have a morning walk. It really helps uh, re-establish your um, diurnal rhythms for day and night. So even if your morning is quite a late morning compared with a morning person, get out there, get the sunlight on you or the the daylight, I should say, in Melbourne rather than sunlight. But yeah, yeah, those things are very important. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Natalie. I have just loved uh, chatting to you. And, you know, as I said at the start, none of this would have happened if it hadn't have been for me turning up in your clinic uh, at the beginning of, uh, actually, no, it was the end of 2014 that I first started to come and see you. So it's been a crazy ride. And thank you so much for all of your support and being there for me. It's an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for having me here today. It's been really fun. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. So what's next for you? We'll finish on, you know, what's next and how people can find you if they'd like to know more about uh, the treatment that you provide here in Melbourne, Australia. Sure. So if people want to be in touch, um, probably our website is the best place to start. So that is resonancetherapy.com.au. We have a Facebook page, uh, Resonance Therapy. Um, or emailing at info at resonancetherapy.com.au. And I'm always so happy to um, return people's inquiries and we can just take it from there depending on what's going on. Wonderful. And those links are in the show notes below so that people can uh, make contact with you very easily. Thanks, Natalie. It's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to seeing you in real in, uh, in person very soon. That'll be lovely. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks. Bye. Bye. That was the wonderful Natalie Crutterton on episode five of the Healthy Gut Podcast talking all about SIBO and naturopathy. If you would like to uh, get access to the show notes from today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash naturopath. And that's where we post the show notes and links and uh, that's a great place that you can go and uh, get more information. Now, I absolutely love hearing your feedback, so it would be wonderful if you could go into iTunes and leave us a rating and review. 
And it also helps other people find the podcast. If people are rating it and reviewing it and talking about it, other people just like you who are looking for help when it comes to their digestive issues may be able to find the podcast a little easier. And if you know somebody that you think that this could be helpful for or that they've complained about having digestive issues, it would be wonderful if you could share it with your friends and family member. So leave us a review and a rating on iTunes because it really does help uh, spread the message about SIBO and gut health. If you would like to connect with us outside of the podcast, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and Pinterest. Just look for The Healthy Gut. Now, coming up on episode six of The Healthy Gut podcast, we have the incredible Katie Caldwell. Now, Katie and I connected through the SIBO discussion and support group, which is a Facebook page, and she's now an administrator of that page. Katie has had the most incredible journey um, to, towards health now. Uh, she has experienced all sorts of conditions. Uh, so she's had SIBO, H. pylori, Hashimoto's, and more recently she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She's a blogger. She's got an incredible blog, which I just love. She's got a wonderful writing style. Uh, but she's also a social worker and activist in Honolulu, Hawaii. So I just urge you to tune in to episode six of the Healthy Gut Podcast because we talk about Katie's journey to health and what she's learnt about herself with all of these highs and lows that come with having multiple health conditions. She just shares some incredible advice that uh, anyone that is working or dealing with a chronic illness will just find so valuable. So I do look forward to sharing episode six with you, which is coming up soon. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or the podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. If you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast, you can make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. With thanks to Julian Pryor from J Podcaster for the production and editing of this podcast. To learn more, head to jpodcaster.com. We would also like to thank Belinda Coombs for the original music score. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.